you ever read the Bible and ask, why did this nameless bystander appear in the best-selling book of all time? Or maybe you've wondered, what difference does it make that a certain meeting with Jesus took place in one location instead of another? Well, grab your water bottle because you're about to take a walking tour of the Gospels. But not to worry, we'll leave plenty of time for rest and for your Bible questions. And we'll bring you all the top stories out of the Middle East. That's all ahead on The Land and the Book. Hey, welcome to the broadcast. Our teacher and guide is Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. Looking forward to today's program, Charlie. Uh, Thanks, John. I am as well. Well, you know, once our program is over, though, I wonder where do listeners turn for more content about Israel, the Bible, and sharing the gospel with Jewish people? Well, Life and Messiah has been focused recently on producing high-quality video content on their YouTube channel. Engaging videos are being released twice a week related to these important topics, and we encourage you to check out their content, which will be inspiring and uplifting. As a special for Land in the Book listeners, if you visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button, you can get a sneak peek at one of their upcoming videos and subscribe to their channel. That's lifeinmessiah.org, and then click on the Moody Radio button. All right, let's dig into our look at current events. Last weekend, Israel launched a military operation against the city of Jenin in the West Bank. Where exactly is Jenin? Put it on the map for us and help us understand the reason for the attack, which is being uh, reported in the media in all kinds of interesting terms. What is the long-term impact for Israel and the Palestinians in this uh, current uh, squabble? Well, Jenin's in the northern West Bank. It's located actually in a natural pass that extends south between Mount Carmel and Mount Gilboa. It's relatively close to the city of Dothan. If people remember Bible trivia where Joseph was sold by his brothers to the Ishmaelite travelers. Uh, The city has been a hotbed of Islamic extremism for a long time. Islamic Jihad and Hamas both have a strong presence in the city and Iran has been working to help build up those groups there using the city as a base of operation for promoting terrorism within the West Bank. And sadly, the Palestinian Authority apparently has little control or influence within the city, which adds to the problem. Recently, Janine had served as the launching point for terrorist attacks against Israeli civilians in the West Bank. And in the past, it's also served as a launching point for attacks against Israel proper in places like Afula in the Jezreel Valley. Now, over the past two years, about 50 terrorist attacks emanated from Janine and 19 terrorists uh, guilty of major lethal attacks were protected and then ultimately found shelter there. Uh, The general, the Israeli general in charge of the operation said the mission was to create operational control over the area, thwart and arrest terrorists, destroy enemy infrastructure, and confiscate weapons. And it looks like that's what they did through this past Tuesday. Uh, One of the first places struck was a joint war room used by the different terror groups as an observation post, gathering spot, munitions cache, and communication center. The operation was over, and Israel had withdrawn by Wednesday. Janine experienced a great deal of damage during the conflict. Now, part of the reason is that the terrorists had planted bombs under the roadways and then used them in the past to try and blow up Israeli vehicles that were coming in. So this time, Israel came in with heavy equipment and tore up the roads and destroyed those bombs so they couldn't be used. But for those not involved in the actual fighting, John, they end up coming out to find roads and cars destroyed and houses damaged. Uh, The real question now is what long-term impact the operation might have on security. Now, Israel would like to reduce the influence of Islamic Jihad and Hamas in that city and return it to the control of the Palestinian Authority. 
But if the Palestinian Authority can't reestablish control and rebuild trust with the inhabitants, well, then the operation could end up being just a, a temporary setback for the terrorists, right. like past operations they've had there in Janine and in the Gaza Strip. Well, Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi has now been ruling Egypt for 10 years, having led the coup against the short-lived government of Muslim Brotherhood leader Mohamed Morsi. How stable is the current government, and does Sisi face any threats to his control? You know, John, it's hard to believe that it was June 30, 2013, when al-Sisi led the coup that ousted Mohamed Morsi. Elections followed, and al-Sisi resigned from the military to run as president, and then was elected to a four-year term in 2014. Uh, And then in 2018, he was elected to a six-year term, and he's now allowed to run for another six-year term coming up in 2024. Now, Egypt has gone through a chaotic economic period during his time as president. But it's important to remember what's happened during that time. Al-Sisi had to fight against Islamic extremists, especially in the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, They threatened his government and suppressed tourism, which is one of Egypt's economic engines. Uh, He's managed to greatly reduce the level of terrorist activity, which helped revive the tourism industry. And then COVID hit, and Egypt again had to close its doors to tourists. That caused another economic tsunami to sweep across that country. And then just as the world reopened and tourism started to come back, Russia invaded Ukraine, which threatened the world's grain supply. And most people don't realize it, but Egypt's the world's largest importer of wheat, uh, much of it coming from Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Grain prices skyrocketed, putting economic pressure on millions of poor Egyptians. Uh, The Egyptian pound lost more than half its value. Now, in spite of all those obstacles, al-Sisi has been trying to move Egypt forward economically. He arranged for loans from the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank to help stabilize the economy. And Egypt is also in the process of working with Israel to export natural gas from the Mediterranean to Europe. In addition to the Muslim fundamentalists still in the country, al-Sisi has one other potential threat, and that's the military. The military remains powerful, and al-Sisi has made some decisions that their leadership don't like. Uh, Going forward, the challenge is for him to implement economic reforms without getting removed from office in a coup. But he's demonstrated good leadership in otherwise challenging times, so let's hope he can continue. We're taking a look at current events in the Middle East region here on The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East scholar and author. I'm John Geiger. Thanks for your company. Israel announced plans to build its seventh desalination plant and its first off the coast of Western Galilee. What are the details behind the plans for this new facility? And are there any concerns about placing the plant in northern Israel? Yeah, and to give people a perspective on this, Israel currently has five desalination plants in operation. A sixth is already under construction, and in fact, it's scheduled to come online next year. So this recent announcement for the seventh facility uh, will be built in the north near Naharia, which is just north of Akko. Uh, When this desalination plant comes online, it's expected to bring Israel's total production to almost 900 million cubic meters of water annually. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to most people, but it represents 85 to 90 percent of Israel's total household and industrial water consumption. 35% of the cost for this new plant is going to be provided by the European Investment Bank. This represents Europe's commitment to climate action and green transition because the plant will be powered using renewable energy, primarily wind and solar power. 
But Israel isn't planning on taking a victory lap and then heading home. A study from Hebrew University estimates that Israel will need up to 30 desalination plants online within the next 40 years. Part of the reason, it's a concern over climate change and the possibility of the long-term drought in the Middle East continuing. But an even larger reason for the increase are projections that the total population of Israel will more than double during that time. And a third reason for the increase is related to Israel's desire to cement its relations with Jordan by providing that resource-poor country with water in exchange for Jordan using its vast open desert to provide Israel with solar energy. Each could help the other. So plant number six comes online in less than a year. Plant number seven will take a few years to complete. And only planners in some otherwise obscure government agency know when plants 8 through 30 are going to find their way onto the drawing board and then onto the Mediterranean coast. Well, either way, that's pretty exciting. A new exhibit at the Israel Museum highlights a royal banquet for Assyrian king Asher Nasserpal II in 879 B.C. Why have an exhibit that focuses on this king? And can the exhibit somehow help us understand other events in the Bible, maybe? Yeah, well, the exhibit actually uses the banquet hosted by Asher Nasserpal as a jumping off point to focus on feasts and the use of food and feasts for political purposes. Uh, This exhibit, which is slated to run through December, has multiple parts, but the part I found fascinating was the use of the banquet Stella describing the feast of Asher Nasserpal to celebrate the construction of his palace in Kala, his new capital. According to the inscription, The 10-day celebration had 69,574 invited guests, including 16,000 citizens of the new town, 5,000 dignitaries, and then envoys from his territories and other lands. On the menu were 1,000 oxen, 1,000 domestic cattle and sheep, 14,000 imported and fatted sheep, 1,000 lambs, 500 game birds, 500 gazelles, 10,000 fish, 10,000 eggs, 10,000 loaves of bread, 10,000 measures of beer, and 10,000 containers of wine. Now, what I found fascinating, when you compare this to things in the Bible, for example, in 1 Kings 8, Solomon had a banquet with 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. That feast lasted 14 days. Uh, This feast by Asher National Paul just reminds us that events like that described in the Bible in 1 Kings 8 were a reality in the Middle East. And that's this week's look at current events from the Middle East. Up next, it's a walking tour of the Gospels. I'm looking forward to it right here on The Land and the Book. Do you ever read the Bible and ask, why did this nameless bystander appear in the best-selling book of all time? Or maybe you've wondered, what difference does it make that a certain meeting with Jesus took place in one location instead of another? Coming up, you and I will take kind of a walking tour of the Gospels. You're going to be glad you joined us for this second segment of The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, if we haven't met. Well, you can't read the Gospels and escape the Jewishness of Jesus and his love for his people. The question is, how can you and I demonstrate the love of Christ to our Jewish neighbors, co-workers, and relatives? Check this out. If you're going to share Jesus with a Jewish friend or any friend, you can't really do the story justice apart from the crucifixion. And the crucifixion, of course, involves blood. But how do we respond when our Jewish friends tell us that blood sacrifice is no longer necessary? Wes Tabor is with Life in Messiah. We agree that without a temple and priesthood, sacrifice is no longer possible. 
But what makes us think it's no longer necessary? We understand the God of Israel is the one who established the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system that required blood for atonement. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Mm -hmm. We also find in the Old Testament God's promise of one who will make atonement. So where do we go in the scriptures to point our Jewish friends to biblical truth? Well, the clearest description of Messiah's atoning work is found in Isaiah 53. But pointers to Messiah can be found throughout the Old Testament. Check out Moody's Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. Thoughts from Wes Tabor, who's with Life in Messiah, joining us today on The Land and the Book. Dr. John A. Beck is a scholar, educator, and writer with extensive experience in biblical geography. He has a Ph.D. in theology, Hebrew and Old Testament from Trinity International University, and is an adjunct faculty member at Jerusalem University College in Israel. His passion is to make the wisdom of the Bible understandable, and he's been writing on the topic of biblical geography for more than 20 years, both within and outside of the Middle East. It's great to welcome him back to The Land and the Book. Good to have you, Jack. John, thanks for the opportunity to visit again. Well, so you're a lover of biblical geography. Let's start with one of the least understood but truly significant moments in the life of Christ that is riveted to a key geographical site. What comes to mind? A significant moment in the life of Christ that is absolutely welded to a geographical site. What do you think? Yeah, so, I mean, there's just so many, right, that I could pick from. But I think one of those that's most insightful is the location of the two grand feeding miracles of Jesus, the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000. A lot of times those get homogenized into one story in our mind's eye, Uh, but the biblical authors really do make sure that we separate the two, and one of the tools that they use to do that is uh, geography. And when they separate them, we see that that place where those two events occurred is actually fundamental to understanding the story. All right. Uh, why don't you detail a little bit of the difference? Why is it so key? So I, I think part of the story is the similarity between the two, right? So when we read those two stories, it's easy to presume that they're just the same story because they sound so much alike. Mm-hmm. But when we look carefully at where Jesus is, we find that when he feeds the 5,000, he's on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, that's important because that is an observant Jewish side of the lake. That means that the feeding of the 5,000 was a feeding miracle that was being done for a Jewish audience. Fast forward to the feeding of the 4,000, and the setting moves from the northwest side of the lake to the east side of the lake. And what we know is those who lived on the east side of the lake were pagan and Gentile. Uh, And that means that Jesus was doing that second miracle, the feeding of the Mm -hmm. 4,000, for a very different ethnic group. It shows up in the numbers, the number of baskets collected, 12 versus 7, but the geography is there as well that helps us see the difference. And uh, I think what's so powerful about it is that when we see the difference in location, the two feeding miracles become more than, than miracles about food. They're about forgiveness yes, and about the reach of forgiveness, that Jesus was treating two different groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, in virtually the same way. 
And when we realized how important meals were in the ancient Near Eastern world as a, as a way of, of showing harmony and community, uh, we see that Jesus is extending his kingdom to two different groups of people around the lake. And it doesn't matter then which side of the lake you live on. Forgiveness reaches every corner. Dr. Jack Beck has been writing on the topic of biblical geography for more than 20 years, both within and outside of the Middle East. It's great to have him back here on The Land and the Book. You know, Jack, it seems to me from the eight trips I've made to Israel and the little maps that we grew up with in our Bibles, uh, they just don't come close to describing the terrain and the sense of place that the gospel stories bring us. Uh, Those little maps just aren't quite sufficient. Yeah, I I know exactly what you mean, John, because I had the experience of reading the Bible before I traveled to Israel and then reading the Bible after I traveled to Israel. And it's amazing what your eyes see and your ears hear and your fingers touch. I'm I'm reminded of John's words in 1 John 1.1 when he talks about his time with Jesus, when he says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Mm -hmm. Um, For those of us who have had the privilege of being in the land, uh, it really is a sensory surround experience when we read the text. Well, why then are so many of us so geographically illiterate when it comes to the Holy Land? Yeah, I I think that this is an accident of history. Uh, Let me start with the fact that I don't believe language was ever designed to function well apart from place. All of us are highly influenced by place, who we are and how we think and how we most naturally communicate with one another is very much influenced by place. And we see it all over in the biblical uh, writings. But when the center of the church, I should say, moved from the Middle East to Europe, I think that that move uh, left behind some of the placidness of the book. Uh, We end up with the Bible moving into the philosophical, theological thought world, and some of that reality, or maybe a good deal of that reality, got left behind in the Middle East. Mm. So we haven't been sensitized to it in the way that we could be. I've been in my career for the now almost 30 years doing everything I can, whether it's through film productions with Our Daily Bread Film or through books that I've been writing, uh, making effort to reconnect people to the way in which uh, land influences our reading of text. Well, your book is filled with wonderful devotionals. Take us to one of your very favorites and just kind of share the golden nugget inside with us. Yeah, I, I think one of my favorites is John 14, when Jesus is speaking to the disciples who are so concerned and worried about the fact that he's talked to them about going to the cross and suffering and and dying. And they're very concerned about the separation. And Jesus uses this wonderful physical picture when he says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. What I love about that image is that Jesus is reaching back to their homes in Galilee, which were built in a unique way, different than they are down in Jerusalem, uh, built in a unique way and surrounded by a unique culture. There's a, there's a big open courtyard in the middle of a Galilean home and around the perimeter little rooms. Uh, the big courtyard is meant for the extended family gatherings. I mean, I'm talking as many as 100 people may be part of this communal household. Uh, but individual families like husband, wife, and the kids, they need a private room around the perimeter of that courtyard. And so that's the type of architecture I think Jesus is talking about. Let me add to that 
the fact that when a, a male member of that extended family was married, he would add a room onto the family compound and then bring his bride together uh, to live in that new room with his extended family. I think it's such a beautiful picture because Jesus reaches back from Jerusalem into their Galilean home life to remind them that what he's doing is actually what a husband would do. I'm just going ahead of you to get things ready for you. And it's one of the most wonderful pictures of heaven I think we have in the gospel. I love it. Getting things ready for us. This is The Land and the Book, segment two out of four. I'm John Geiger, our host, Dr. Jack Beck. He's a scholar, educator, and writer with extensive experience in biblical geography. He's written a walking tour of the gospel. You know, uh, one thing that I think all serious students of Scripture have learned is that no detail is insignificant. But at first glance, they can seem that way. Jack, what are what are we missing in our study when we resort to that kind of wrong thinking? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with you, John. I think that when the Holy Spirit brought the thoughts of God into our lives through the authors and poets of the Bible, there is a lot of detail that gets shed as the event moves into story or poetic form. So we're already losing some of the details, and there are questions that we could ask about a story like, was it cloudy or sunny? What was the temperature? You know, these sorts of questions that aren't answered. So we already have a reduction in the amount of details that would have occurred between the event and the story. That means that everything that made the bridge, everything that walked across that bridge between the event and the story, it's there to help shape our understanding of what that story is about. And there's no detail, no single piece of grammar, no single element in the storytelling uh, that I would regard as superfluous. They're all critical. And the problem is, John, I think for us, is that we tend to read and respond to things that are familiar, and it means that the geography or the cultural elements that aren't familiar to us, we tend to read past them quickly. And when we do, we miss sometimes these little nuggets that really turn a story in a direction uh, that is unique to it. Jack, you have made no secret of your passion to make the wisdom of the Bible understandable. Uh, Give us a couple of obvious steps that a listener could take right now to make that wisdom more understandable. Yeah, so I, I think the first thing that we need to do is make sure that we sensitize ourselves to what we're looking for. We tend to see what we're looking for. So I need to be intentional about looking for geographical references. Uh, That could be the physical geography, the place names, or the type of terrain that's involved. I need to be aware of whether or not a particular element of climate or even an earthquake is occurring as a part of that story set. I need to, first of all, notice what's there. That's step Mm. one. Step two is I need to come to understand it, because the place name or the phenomena that I'm looking at, I may have something similar to that in my own life and culture, but it doesn't necessarily parallel uh, what life was like in the land of Israel in Bible times. So I have to come to understand that geographic element as people of Bible times did. And then the fun part, John, the third step is to ask the question, how is that becoming part of the communication process? How is the Spirit using that to reach into my life and to shape my understanding of who God is, how He thinks about me, and how He wants me to think about others? 
So it starts with knowing what you're looking for, to call attention to the geography, to notice it. Then step two is to understand it the way that people in Bible times did. And third is to integrate it into our reading of text. And I'll tell you, that is a lifelong opportunity that awaits because I've been doing this, like I said, for over 30 years, <laughs> and I don't think I'm anywhere near the end of discovery. That's Jack Beck. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book, where we're taking a walking tour of the Gospels. In the book, you suggest that believers today are not mere bystanders, somehow scanning a long timeline that stretches backwards. Rather, you point out that we have a role in continuing the work of Jesus in building his geographically and culturally diverse kingdom. Explain just a bit more here. Yeah, I think this is something Jesus talks about with some frequency. I think all of us have a role in extending the kingdom beyond the boundaries that we tend to set up for ourselves, right? Uh, So when Jesus was in Nazareth speaking at his boyhood home synagogue, he was talking to people who celebrated the fact that this guy was speaking like someone of repute and importance. We have to understand Nazareth was about as backwater as you could get, a place that that simply begged for attention. And uh, uh, when Jesus came and spoke to them, they celebrated his arrival at first. But when he began to talk to them about breaking past the barriers uh, that they had put up, about extending the kingdom of God into the lives of those who were not Jewish, uh, they wanted to take him out to the brow of the hill near the village and, and throw him off. And sometimes I feel like that's me too. I I tend to have these blinders up. I tend to think that the church looks like the person I see in the mirror in the morning. And the reality is the kingdom is much bigger than that. And Mm -hmm. Jesus over and over and over again, geographically uh, and culturally, seeks to extend my view so that I see the kingdom like he does. Wow. Well, there are just so many insights in this book, A Walking Tour of the Gospels. Perfect for families, by the way, lots of color pictures to illustrate what Jack is talking about. There's a link to the book and to Jack's website at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Hey, thanks for the visit, Jack. Always a pleasure to be with you, John. Thank you for the opportunity to share. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to Charlie Dyer's questions and answers next on The Land and the Book. Questions and answers. That's this segment next on The Land and the Book with our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and we never get tired of your questions. Never uh, lose interest in the things that interest you as you head through Scripture. And Charlie, the Scriptures themselves are a book so big and so deep and so multi-layered, you couldn't possibly run out of questions, I don't think. I don't think so either, John. And that's what makes the teacher of me just love this segment so much. If people have questions, it forces me to dig into the Word of God for answers, and that just gets me closer to Christ. We'll start with Carol's question. She says, I've come upon Let the Stones Speak. It's a magazine, she says. And and I wonder, can it be considered a reputable source of information, or is it just one that's trying to maybe justify its own conclusions? Well, it's it's published by the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology, and that's named after Herbert W. Armstrong, who is the founder of the Worldwide Church of God. Uh, The Institute's associated with an offshoot of Armstrong's original church. This new offshoot is called the Philadelphia Church of God. Although it's somewhat to get information on exactly what they believe, I think they're closely aligned with the teaching of Herbert W. Armstrong, which included a number of beliefs that we would consider heretical. Now, you're asking, though, specifically about the Let the Stone Speak magazine. 
the goals of the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology includes promoting the Bible as a credible and essential historical resource for archaeology in Israel. As a result, as I've looked through it, uh, I've seen many of their articles focus on the connections between archaeological discoveries and the Word of God. And to that extent, the magazine really does look like it could be helpful. Uh, The only thing I would suggest, though, is you exercise caution as you read, since the Institute is connected to a group that promotes non-biblical teaching. So if you subscribe to the magazine, just be sure to read with care. Carol asks, since God is all-knowing, I'm wondering why he created Lucifer in the first place. Seems like he would have saved himself, his beloved son, and us so much suffering if he had refrained from that one creation. Well, since the Bible never tells us why God created Satan, I need to start by saying that this is a case where we don't fully understand the mind and purpose of God. I'm reminded of Isaiah 55, 8, 9. You know, there God said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Uh, Now, having said that, though, I do have two ideas that, that might be helpful. First, we need to remember God did not force Satan to sin. Rather, he created Satan as a perfect angelic being. But then later, Satan chose to rebel against God. Now, that's all part of God's ultimate plan, but we just need to be sure we don't assume God somehow created evil. I say that because uh, as God's describing Satan's fall in Ezekiel 28, 15, he said, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created to wickedness was found in you. You know, God created Satan without sin. Satan chose to rebel against God, and that's when wickedness was found in him. Uh, The second point, though, is I believe God might have indirectly answered the question in his response to Job in Job 41. You know, there God describes the Leviathan, which he calls the king over all that are proud. Now, while that could be a literal animal like a crocodile, it's also possible God was using the animal to remind Job that even the evil ones in the world, like Satan, who's described in chapters 1 and 2 of Job, are still under God's ultimate control. And though this might appear to be the king over all from a human perspective, God stops in the middle of the chapter and reminds Job that everything under heaven belongs to me. In other words, Job didn't understand his suffering or the cosmic struggle that was behind it. God has to remind Job there's a lot about life that Job doesn't understand, including the existence of prideful, evil beings. God doesn't explain why they exist, but he reminds Job that he's in control, and his point to Job is to recognize God's sovereign control and then to rest in God's power and his presence And I think, in in essence, we need to follow Job's example. And at the end of Job, in chapter 42, he said, I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And that's where I need to leave this question of God and evil and Satan. Someday we may understand, but right now we don't have the full picture. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger, really intrigued with your questions and Charlie's answers. Charlie, uh, you know, when the program is over, People wonder where can they turn to for more content about Israel, the Bible, and sharing the gospel with Jewish people. And that's why Life and Messiah has been focused recently on producing high-quality video content on their YouTube channel. Engaging videos are being released twice a week related to these important topics. In fact, we encourage you to check out their content, which will be inspiring and uplifting. Now, as a special for Land and the Book listeners, if you visit lifeinmessiah.org, and click on the Moody Radio button, you can get a sneak peek at one of their upcoming videos and subscribe to their channel. That's lifeinmessiah.org, and then click on the Moody Radio button. Well, let's get back to our questions here on The Land and the Book. Judith listens to us every week, she says, on KHCB Houston. 
Thank you for that. And let us know, by the way, how you listen, where you listen, as you email your question to the land and the book at moody.edu. She takes us to Mark 15, 46. It says that Joseph of Arimathea rolled the stone over the opening of the tomb. But it's been said many times that it would take several men to roll the stone away because it was so heavy. Can you please explain? Well, it's likely that Joseph's tomb had a rolling stone that was set in a trough on a slight incline. You know, gravity would help the stone roll down to cover the opening, but pushing it back uphill to uncover the opening would take more effort. Uh, the women who were, who were there were concerned because well, they didn't feel they had the upper body strength to roll that stone back up the inclined trough. Here's a question from Todd. Where did we get our verse divisions in our Bibles? I'm particularly curious about why there is often a discrepancy between the verse divisions in the Hebrew text and the verses in English in the Old Testament. That's a great question. It takes a little long answer here, uh, but most people don't realize the Bible didn't have chapter or verse divisions when it was first written. Uh, in fact, those are relatively recent additions. Uh, the first step in getting to where we are today took place in the 13th century. The Archbishop of Canterbury divided the different books of the Bible into chapters. Uh, the first Bible to use those chapter divisions was the Wycliffe English Bible in 1382. The next step in the process was the dividing of the chapters into verses, and the Hebrew scriptures were divided by a Jewish rabbi around 1450. About 100 years later, a Christian printer in Paris took the Hebrew verse divisions for the Old Testament and modified them just slightly and added then verse divisions for the New Testament. Beginning with the Geneva Bible in 1557 and followed soon after by the King James Version in 1611, the chapter and verse divisions that we know today became the commonly accepted way to identify chapters and verses in the Bible. And the difference between the Hebrew and English versions, which are relatively minor verse divisions, were based on the way the two groups saw the divisions of thought in those passages. David asks, are Jewish people the bride of Christ? And is the body of Christ essentially the new believers after Jesus rose from the dead? Or are they two different groups? Also, are Jewish people the high priest on earth now and the body of Christ? Or just ambassadors of Christ, not high priest? He says, I thought the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the high priest were all the same group. I'm confused. Thank you. Yeah, these are all figures of speech. And to answer, let me go into just a bit of detail. The church is called the body of Christ. I think one of the best references is in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, you're Christ's body and individually members of it. The church is never actually called the bride of Christ, but that is imagery used of the church. In fact, the closest image might be Ephesians 5. You know, Paul compared a husband and wife to Christ and the church. Or 2 Corinthians 11, he pictured them as being betrothed to Christ, and he was going to present them as a pure virgin. Uh, the one passage where bride is used is Revelation 21.9. The angel says to John, come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. But in the next verse, John is shown the holy city, Jerusalem. In this case, it looks like the bride is the heavenly city, Jerusalem, which, according to Hebrews 12, is the home of the redeemed of all ages, as well as the angelic beings and the triune God. In terms of the imagery of the priests, the book of Revelation does say we've been made a kingdom and priests to serve our God. But the group being described, at least in Revelation 20, where that phrase is used, are those who were resurrected at the time of Jesus' physical return to earth, which are Old Testament saints. So again, uh, in that sense, both Old and New Testament saints seem to be pictured as those who will share in this role. Now, in summary, I think the figures of speech are used to describe roles God gives to his followers. In the Old Testament, Israel's pictured as the bride or wife of Yahweh. In the New Testament, the church is given that imagery. And both are pictured in, in an intimate way as being serving God as priests. 
Uh, so uh, the Bible is using both images to describe Old and New Testament saints. And we just need to remember that it's imagery trying to picture where we are. Here's a question from fellow Israel traveler Lenny. She says, has the burial grounds of the Old Testament kings ever been found? Well, the tombs of the kings in Jerusalem hasn't been absolutely identified, but many feel they do know its likely location. You know, when David died, it says he was buried in the city of David. That's the small spur of land just south of what's now the old city of Jerusalem. Near the southern tip of that, archaeologists found a spot with two openings carved into the bedrock. And whatever was there, well, it's been quarried away through the centuries, but this could be the remains of the spot where David had his memorial tomb. Uh, subsequent kings of Judah were then likely buried in that same tomb complex. Well, it's been great getting your questions. And if you didn't hear one of yours being mentioned, uh, you can always ask it at the land and the book at moody.edu. I'm looking forward to Charlie Dyer's devotional. It's next right here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. If you appreciate the program, tell a friend about us. Thanks. Sure glad you've stuck around for this fourth segment on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with Charlie Dyer, our host. The Land of the Book, of course, is part of the Moody Radio family, and that name Moody belonged to an evangelist named Dwight Moody, who lived in the uh, later 1800s. Charlie, did you know that there are two recordings of Dwight Moody's voice? I, I do, and in fact, I have them on my computer. I, I think they're just amazing. One of them, of course, is the Beatitudes. The other is from Psalm 91, and I understand that's where we're headed today in your devotional? Indeed it is. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to that after we take in another testimony from an Israel traveler like this one. Hi, my name is Miriam Galvin. I'm from Chicago, Illinois. Um, I love the way Charlie put his sermonettes, and I really enjoyed and I got quite a bit out of them. I just love the way he uses his servanthood to fill in the details that is needed. And I learned quite a bit that I need to be more of a servant like Jesus taught us to be a servant. And Charlie demonstrates that on a daily basis and on every piece of the trip. It was just fantastic. The other thing I loved was the bell caves. I really enjoyed that. So because the acoustic is so nice, I always said, well, we gotta do the do-it-yourself Messiah down there. Loved it. Thank you, Charlie. Boy, I love sharing these Holy Land experiences with you. Psalm 91 has got to be one of my all-time favorites, Charlie, and I'm sure that's true for many other listeners. I'm looking forward to your devotional in the shelter of the Most High. Well, thanks, John. And our journey today takes us to Jerusalem to explore the message of Psalm 91. Now, in our Bibles, this is an anonymous psalm, though the Septuagint translation ascribes its authorship to King David. We don't actually know if David composed it, though in many ways it matches key themes in David's life. In our day, it's often referred to as the soldier's psalm. The reason for that becomes obvious as we read through. Now, I want us to look at the psalm's assuring words, then ask a disturbing question, followed by an even more disturbing illustration. But trust me, you won't leave depressed, because we'll end with an assuring conclusion. So bear with me and follow along. Psalm 91 is a real gem of a psalm. It begins with an affirmation from the psalmist himself. 
He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. The word for shelter refers to a hiding place or secret refuge. Resting in God's shadow pictures hiding in the shadow under God's protective wing. A few verses later, the psalmist describes God covering him with his feathers, helping us complete the picture. The psalmist also says God is his refuge and fortress, and the word for fortress is metsudah, from which we get the word masada. God's refuge is unassailable because he's the one guarding it. Then beginning in verse 3 and going through verse 13, the psalmist switches perspective. Instead of describing the protection God is giving him, he describes the protection God will provide his audience. God will save you from the fowler's snare. He will cover you with his feathers, which is where you will find refuge. It's as if, having described what God has done for him, he turns to those listening and announces, and he will do the same for you. The psalmist paints a dramatic portrait of God's protection. It will be there always. You will not fear the terror of night or the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. Whether the danger is at night or during the day, whether it's caused by human threat, the arrow that flies, or by an unseen enemy like pestilence or plague, whatever the threat, God will be there to ward it off. The psalmist ends this section by sharing God's ironclad promise. If you make the Most High your dwelling, then no harm will befall you. And he explains how God will provide such protection. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. The psalmist uses Hebrew parallelism to drive home the point. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. This dual reference to lions and poisonous snakes suggests God will give you the ability to defeat the most dangerous and devious of foes. And as if those promises aren't amazing enough, God then speaks directly in the final three verses, issuing his own personal guarantee. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let's face it. This is an amazing psalm of promise showing the security God will provide to those who place their trust in him. But now I need to raise a disturbing question. Is this always true? What happens when these verses seem to collide with reality? What about the believers who died of COVID? What about the Christians who were martyred by ISIS? Or those believers who died fighting to defeat evil from the Nazis in World War II to the Islamic fundamentalists of Al-Qaeda? What about believers struck down by cancer or victims of automobile crashes caused by someone else? How do we align the truth of Psalm 91 with the reality that bad things do happen to good and godly people? Now, before you answer, let me share my even more disturbing illustration. Did you know that Satan himself has studied and mastered Psalm 91? How do I know this? Well, during his temptation of Jesus, Satan used Psalm 91 to try to get Jesus to sin. Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 record the interaction this way. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, 
He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan was directly quoting Psalm 91, verses 11 to 12. The high point of the temple building, possibly the corner overlooking the Kidron Valley, has been estimated to have been over 150 feet high. Why don't you jump and prove you really are God's son, since God has promised to protect you? Remember that I said I would ask a disturbing question and follow it with an even more disturbing illustration? But then I said I would end with an assuring conclusion, and that's what I want to do right now. The first part of the conclusion comes from Jesus' own words to Satan during his temptation. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Our problem in life is that we don't see the complete picture. From our perspective, we believe we know what God ought to do in certain circumstances. And like Job, we become perplexed when this puzzle we call life doesn't seem to match the picture on the box. Jesus' words to Satan are a reminder that to demand God respond to our expectations could be asking him to do something that's against his ultimate good and perfect will for our lives. Like the old television sitcom, Father Knows Best, our Heavenly Father really does know best. And we don't necessarily see all the times God has intervened on our behalf to keep us safe, sending his angels to watch over us, protecting us from dangers we didn't even realize were heading in our direction. And other times when we have faced trouble and asked God for help, He's come and answered our prayers, sometimes quite miraculously. Our problem is that when we don't receive the answer we want or experience deliverance we somehow expect, uh, does that mean God doesn't care or that he can't be trusted or that we somehow fell short and now don't deserve his help? No, it does not. What it means is that there are times when God's good and perfect will for us takes us through the valley of the shadow of death. Like Job, it could be there's a cosmic battle taking place and that our lives are ground zero. Will we trust God even when the going gets tough? Or will we collapse like a house of cards? Rather than putting God to the test, those are the times we need to walk by faith and then trust that God does know what's best. And that leads to my final observation on this psalm. In the final three verses, God's deliverance seems to go beyond just this life. God says he will provide protection in times of trouble, which, by the way, does suggest we'll experience trouble in life. God also promises to deliver, honor, satisfy, and show his salvation. Sometimes God does this by delivering us from difficulty. Other times he does it by delivering us through trouble. But in either case, remember this, you do not need to be afraid when facing trials in your life because God has said he'll be with you and will deliver you. And even if the struggles bring you to the point of physical death, you can remain confident that God will provide ultimate deliverance. As the Apostle Paul wrote shortly before his martyrdom, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward to me on that day. And God will do the same for you. Just stay faithful. Very, very encouraging. Thank you, Charlie, for that look at Psalm 91. Well, our time is gone, but we sure appreciate your company here. You need to know that The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.